0: Welcome to the Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Chris albin Lakin. Chris is Director of Programs at the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investments. Prior to joining the center, Chris worked for 50 years at GIMA Rise, watching a variety of roles across the organization in Africa. Chris also uh, has a legal and policy uh, background and leads teams in these areas. He has also worked in private and practice advising Fortune 100 companies on complex human rights and governance challenges. Chris, welcome to the Shila Karma Extractive podcast. I appreciate your taking the time to speak with me.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Happy to be here.
0: That's lovely. So I, I, I wonder whether you could just help us with some context. Uh, the notion of local communities are they defined by geographic uh, footprint or other factors? W- what do we mean by local
1: communities? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think in practice, especially when we're talking about extractives development, it does tend to have a kind of geographic footprint um, element to it in the sense that um, we're often talking about communities that are in the closest proximity um, to these projects, but really the idea is to think about communities who are going to feel the most direct and immediate impacts um, as a result of their proximity to these projects, you know, the the communities that are really going to feel, um, or at least have a risk of suffering some kind of harmful externalities um, that are unique to them because they're so close to, or in some other way, so closely linked to a new project?
0: So that's interesting because you are emphasizing potential adverse impact. It's not just about being in an area, it's about uh, if we undertake this development, how might we impact this community? And and in a way, that is where the focus in the community uh, begins. But let me ask then, Um, My experience is that many of the projects also can draw on a traffic of people that are otherwise not, if you wish, uh, part of the original community and therefore distort the demographics, if you wish. How do we deal with that then?
1: Yeah, well, this is why, um, you know, and I think we'll get into this more um, in the course of this conversation. But this is why, um, you know, focusing on this community lens has a certain amount of potential, and it has it has its pitfalls too, right? Um, and the the issue you've identified, I think, is one of those pitfalls. Um, I, uh, I I did some work around a mine, a, a gold mine in Papua New Guinea, years ago, and there was. An enormous amount of tension between the kind of quote-unquote local community and the mining company. People's farmland had largely been swallowed up by the mine. People felt that the mine was having a negative impact on the quality of the water that they depended on, um, on the quality of air. There were, um, you know, some violent incidents uh, between people living around the mine and the security of the mine. But one of the things that had happened was that. The mine had attracted this huge influx of migrants from other parts of the country who, by the time I went there, actually outnumbered the people who, you know, were quote unquote kind of indigenous to that area. And so this whole series of related questions had cropped up where people who were kind of among the original residents of that area very much felt that the whole discourse around community rights really only related to them and not to the people who they regarded as outsiders who would come later um, for various kinds of economic opportunities. But then you had this other population of people, which was actually larger, um, who'd come to the area say within the last decade or so, who had a very different set of issues um, that they felt needed to be addressed. And so it actually can be very difficult in a context like this to even arrive at any kind of consensus view over who the community is um, for the purposes of conversations about what the community's rights are and what kinds of things they should be entitled to um, when a big extractive or other project opens up in their backyard.
0: So uh, what then becomes a remedy then? Do we abandon uh, the quest for community welfare or community rights? How do we strike that balance when because you know as as you talk about this Papua New Guinea experience, i I can see how the smaller population can feel swamped and and feel right. that what is uh, uh, rightly theirs is suddenly belonging to anybody uh, and 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 that they they may feel an inherent sense of injustice. How do we mitigate the prospect of injustice?
1: right. and uh, that's that's exactly it. And I think um that question. Speaks to the larger dilemma that I think underpins um, all of this stuff in a lot of places, which is that in theory, um, the right place to turn for a legitimate answer to the question you're asking and many others like it is government. Um, You know, government should be there to serve as kind of a legitimate representative of the interests of all the different communities within its border it should be there to kind of help negotiate an acceptable outcome to thorny questions like this. It's really hard for a multinational extractives company to wade into these kinds of really difficult, complex debates about who the legitimate community of people is that it should be most paying attention to um, without messing it up um, and certainly without, you know, angering inevitably a certain segment of the population. But I think the thing that's been uniquely difficult about extractive industries over the last several decades is that um, very often um, these, uh, these projects are being developed in relatively remote and or poorly governed spaces where the state, the government just isn't present uh, in the way one would hope. It isn't there to put forward a solution that helps um negotiate through these kinds of difficult dynamics and in fact a big part of the reason why we have this discourse about communities in the first place is very often a reaction to this perception that the government is not there to serve as a legitimate guardian of the community's interests and for that reason you have to go Beyond the government and engage with the community in a more direct way, and there's a logic to that. It in it's it is, I think, in many contexts, the only responsible approach. But then paradoxically, it is also one that is often almost impossible for companies or other outside actors to get right without the support of government, um, which in turn they do not have. Hmm. So I, you can't turn away from it, but it is, in a way, it, it often presents a series of, of problems that really do defy easy solution.
0: Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I think the notion of a paradox is really one that I think is, is, is glaring, because on the one hand, the idea of having a government, a sovereign state and a government, is that the, the, the sovereign state looks after the welfare of citizens and presides on such matters. But that, but that's the ideal. What you are saying is, actually, in many cases, the reality is far from that because the government, either because of lack of interest, lack of capacity, often isn't there, and then you have to bring others. But at the same time, by doing that, you could argue to your point that you add complexity because then you are not allowing the government to govern if you wish. So, so you're caught between what, what the right balance is. I want to ask you, because we're we speaking here about what you might consider the original community around a project versus those who come later, uh, and the importance of trying to distinguish between the two. In some cases, we also uh, don't we uh, want to distinguish between what you might call Indigenous or First Nations people. How does that play into the picture of communities where you may have a community around the development, but they are not necessarily First Nations people. And and, and yet you have also in that same uh, vicinity, First Nations people. What's the balance there? H- how do we deal with the complexity of these different social dynamics?
1: Right. Well, it, you know, when you have a situation where you're dealing with Indigenous communities, not just the original inhabitants of a place, but indigenous communities is kind of conceived under international law. The situation is conceptually a bit more straightforward, but practically I think even more complicated, right? Um, Conceptually under international law, indigenous communities should have the right to free prior and informed consent, which essentially means that no project that's going to have a significant impact on their resources, their communities, their interests should proceed unless it is with the consent of that community. Um, In practice, this is a norm that is almost never observed. And in practice, it can be very hard um, to actually ascertain when a particular community um, has a right to this claim and who has the right then to represent that community. And in the situations you're describing, um where there may be an indigenous community but then also another large population of people it becomes more complicated still because while you can make a clear case that a project shouldn't move forward except under terms that that indigenous community agrees to that doesn't necessarily guarantee that the interests of other people who might not have a voice through that indigenous community's own structures of governance um, will, will will be taken into account At all Um, so, and I think these kinds of messy dynamics are more the norm than the exception and. um, What we end up with is a situation where the companies that want to take these projects forward either have to admit that they are never going to be able to find an acceptable way through all of this complexity um, that doesn't result in injustice, in which case. They can't really justify taking the project forward, or they have to convince themselves and others that they can do it. And obviously, in almost every case, there are powerful reasons to want the project to go forward. So the the response is to try and develop kind of elaborate modes of engagement with the community to try to navigate these things, Um, but as often as not. They experience some degree or another of failure, or at least you know they're not universally perceived to have been legitimate.
0: Hmm. So yeah, I mean the, the the you've made several points, but the one that really strikes me as being very important, if complex, is the notion that in the event uh, people otherwise considered legitimate. Uh, owners of a land or some other resource uh, necessary to facilitate development don't agree uh, with the developer, meaning that it doesn't go ahead. And and the notion that if you take that uh, at national level to think one community and their views could uh, get in the way of potential economic developments countrywide. That's pretty uh, difficult to comprehend in terms of uh, when you think of, you know, human rights. When you think of economic development, but also when you think of uh, just the value of the resource to a whole uh, country. And I think that is one of the issues around what is called the social license to operate. That I think remains uh, somewhat controversial, but. Um, I, Increasingly, NGOs and others advocate not just for community rights, but in some cases they advocate for communities to receive revenue directly from the developer. What mm-hmm. is your view on this? Do, do you think this is the right thing in the space of uh, a community within a larger sovereign state?
1: Well, it, it, it I think it all depends on the context. Um, You know, the um, I think that there are a lot of good arguments in favor of that that kind of simple, direct compensation approach. You know, efforts to develop complex programs that resettle communities or otherwise sort of try to make them whole and provide them with alternative approaches to livelihoods don't always work. Um, There's a case to be made that people would be better off just receiving um compensation for harm suffered and then royalty payments maybe um uh to, to go along with some of the so there, there's some real direct local benefit to these projects um I think the problem is that when you start to um and and you know I do I really do believe that in many cases that's that's the best among options that um that people are actually faced with, but you know, once you start establishing um, a situation where people who are part of a local community are entitled to a slice of the revenue generated by a project, then it's very, very difficult to in- avoid um, a lot of really nasty, nasty, and abusive local politics um, that center on this question of who does and does not belong to that group of people. Mm. Um, And in the same way that the whole discourse around community rights reflects a distrust of the larger government as uh, an entity that's able to stand up for people's rights, it it, it can often be the case that at the community level, local structures of power and governance are also abusive. They, They may also exclude Um, certain members of the community. They may also be hobbled by corruption and other kinds of abuse. So it's not not as simple as it sounds in the sense that once once you define a group of people as being legitimately part of a community and therefore entitled to some kind of ongoing economic benefit, um, there's almost inevitably going to be an endless amount of debate and struggle about who does and does not have the right to say that they are one of those people. Um, And there again, you end up in a situation where the absence of the government can be felt very sorely, because how to navigate these kinds of complex questions if you can't rely on the government to do it for you?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm reflecting again on the Papua New Guinea scenario, because, of course, Uh, Quite apart from remoteness, many of the countries in which these community concerns arise also comprise of very different social and cultural groups. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder whether in your view, engaging one particular community that may very well end up economically better off than others, whether that adds to an already potentially fractured uh, social and economic and political system?
1: Yeah, I think that is a very real risk. Um, to cite the Papua New Guinea example again, you know what actually happened there was there are uh, um, the the people who were identified as the original landowners whose land. Um, was largely or partly taken away to make room for the mine are entitled to royalty payments from that project. Um, That those people receive a reasonably generous cash payment every month and have become a very privileged class locally with a set of interests that are sort of different from everyone else's. Alongside them, you have a lot of people who believe that they should be a part of that same group of people, but were excluded unfairly. And then you have an enormous number of migrants who are mostly ethnically different from the people who uh, originally hail from that area, who in turn feel that it's unfair that they are completely excluded from these benefits. And in any case, um, the decision to award those royalty payments hasn't really done anything to buy uh, a sense of, Peace or widespread local legitimacy around what the mine is doing. So, um, so all that to say, um, yes, I, I think um, you know there there is a there is a very real danger, and I think it does play out very often in practice that um, you know that these kinds of community centered approaches can actually contribute to worsening existing division among communities, either at the local level or nationally. Um, the problem, again, to go back to where we started, is that um, it is often very, very difficult and sometimes impossible to think of an approach that isn't worse in spite of all of these dangers and pitfalls.
0: Mm. Yeah, so it becomes, pardon, they chose a phrase, the, the lesser of two uh, evils. Right. So you spoke earlier uh, about this concept of free, prior, and informed consent. I I mean, on face value, it's fairly straightforward because what it is, you try to level the playing field and make sure people come to the party mm-hmm. uh, with some knowledge and capacity uh, to negotiate, and that you know there is no uh, avoidable if you wish uh, unfair advantage. So how does one practically make sure that? In these negotiations between communities and developers, that this, uh, you know, free prior and informed consent uh, process is actually achieved.
1: Well, uh, in practice, it, it it almost never is. Um, I think what you what you'll see on the part of governments and big extractives companies is a kind of halfway acceptance of the idea of free prior and informed consent, where um, people accept that there is a responsibility to do some of the things that you just identified, to negotiating good faith with representatives of local communities, whether indigenous or otherwise, to take steps to try and remedy that gap in capacity and understanding um, to make sure that people are actually negotiating on something more like a level playing field than might otherwise be the case. But um, at the heart of the idea of free prior informed consent is that the community at the end of the day has the right to say no. Mm-hmm. And and that I think is where you would be hard pressed to find an example of a project that it was a, was of significant economic importance to any country that has not gone forward because of that, right? So there's, it ends up being more, um, I think in practice, um, companies and governments like to kind of repackage the idea of free prior and informed consent so that it's really just a right to be consulted, Mm -hmm. but not at the end of the day, a right to give or withhold consent. And, uh, you know, so on the one hand, you know, I think there's, there are situations where uh, kind of clearly impacting indigenous peoples where that's just a hard approach to justify but in practice it's what happens. And then there are many other situations where, um, you know, you you, you mentioned earlier, um, this, this, this um, idea that it can be hard to swallow the idea that a project that's of great economic importance to the larger society should be blocked because of the interests of just one community. And that actually does raise a lot of difficult questions. Um, There are situations where um, it is and has to be acceptable um, to proceed with projects that particular communities don't want if they are, uh, you know, made whole and their rights are respected along the way. But where to draw the line is uh, very difficult.
0: Mm. I'm reminded of a conversation I had maybe uh, 15 years ago with uh, a former head of state here in Busan who said to me, look, you know, what you're saying makes sense, but just tell me why. Uh, Mm. By sheer chance of geology and social anthropology, a community finds itself resident Ah, uh, in the vicinity of a mind, and that by virtue of just that coincidence, they suddenly uh, must have greater rights than another who, by sheer coincidence, happens to be in another place, that just by coincidence doesn't have any geological right. yeah and 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 I think it, it is this that I think uh, people struggle with, but not so much the notion that, to your uh, original comment, the need to compensate for any adverse effects. I think most people get that. But I think it's when you go beyond that, if you compensate for adverse effects, if you compensate for uh, sterilizing land, if you compensate for other things that otherwise the community would have enjoyed, most people get it. But when you you go beyond that and begin to consider them first among equals, if you wish, in terms of the resource itself, then I think things become uh, a little bit um, uh, complex. But uh, I was intrigued, you used to the word in terms of uh, free prior informed consent, you said sometimes governments and companies don't really accept the notion of free uh, prior and informed consent. Is said accept or is it uh, a question of being able to practically implement it? Uh, do you right. think there's a, there's a resistance, uh, or there is an acceptance, but then when you try practically to apply it, because of all these things that we've spoken about, then you hit a snag. W- which do you think is, is the real case?
1: Uh, I think implementation is difficult, but I think the real issue is a lack of acceptance. You know. Uh-huh. Um, I think, I think, I think that, uh, there's acceptance of it right up until the point where you, you get to the, um, the idea that at the end of these negotiations and engagement, the community can just say, no, you can't bring take this project forward because we don't accept it. That's the part that's what makes, you know, under international human rights norm norms, any community, whether, Indigenous or not, um, you know, should be entitled to meaningful consultation about the impact a project is going to have on their communities, their livelihoods, their lands, etc. They should be entitled to compensation for adverse impacts. In some cases, it may be appropriate to, um, you know, resettle people. Um, What makes Indigenous communities different, at least under international human rights law, is supposed to be. Then, in addition to all of that, they have the power to refuse to allow the project to go forward and that so that is, you know, that is where the rights of indigenous peoples are different. um, And greater than the rights of any other community and that kind of you know that that basically when you look back at the reasons for the development of that norm, it reflects the idea that indigenous peoples have a different relationship to the state. Uh, whose territory they might exist within, right? It's, it's kind of a way of acknowledging that some indigenous peoples um, are supposed to be entitled to a somewhat greater degree of autonomy and sovereignty when it comes to the land and resources in their territories than might just be true of a you know, particular town and village of other people existing within the same country. Sure. And so it's that kind of right of refusal. I think there's a genuine lack of acceptance of it but people aren't exactly comfortable saying that out loud. Mm. Um, but in practice, it's very clear that there's there's very little genuine acceptance of a responsibility to allow that right of refusal, even in cases where you're dealing with mm. uh, indigenous communities who kind of uh, under international law should clearly be entitled to it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I think governments are petrified of uh, the fact right. that with that, they lose control for one. But also they're petrified that if they say outright, yes, if you come on our shores and you explore and you find resources, guess what? We can't help you unless you agree. I think Canada is one of the a few cases where that's clearly the case and it has been implemented and that's how it is. But I think in, in many other jurisdictions in the world, uh, governments are afraid of what that does to the power dynamic, but also yeah. what that does to its uh, the notion that, the government is the law of the land. Then defector, you have yeah, another that's, community. that's exactly it. Yeah, that, that becomes the law of the land. And I, uh, you
1: know, I think the more, we we always end up um, in these conversations talking a lot about indigenous communities, partly because of this whole free prior informed consent issue. But really, I think, um, you know, the the larger set of questions that are more often salient are how the government should approach other communities that are not necessarily indigenous peoples. But who are living in the backyard of this new mind that's going to be developed, who don't necessarily at least, you know, under an international law, they're not entitled to this right to refuse. Um, you know, they are entitled to at least compensation and consultation and, you know, a, a lot of other human rights guarantees. But what is the right approach in dealing with that? And here you, you know, you have a lot of advocates arguing that. Other communities, because they suffer such a great imbalance of power, because they they just are never going to be able to operate on an equal footing in terms of negotiating with the government or a big company, that they should also have uh, the same free, prior, and informed consent rights um, mm. to refuse. Um, and interestingly, in Sierra Leone just last year, there is a law adopted that essentially, and it's the only one like it, I believe, anywhere in the world, that actually enshrines this principle that local communities will have to consent to the development of any new project that would use up significant amounts of that community's land for some other purpose. But there is a whole interesting debate. You know, the government perspective is. Um, needs to be taken seriously, right? I mean, in theory, the government is looking out for the development of the greater whole um, in ways that might sometimes transcend in importance local community interests. On the other hand, the local community in practice often risks just getting trampled on and pushed aside because they're relatively weak if they don't have some kind of ironclad right to uh, to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down so it's a really thorny set of issues again that I think defies easy prescription because any answer to it. Um, it raises has other,
0: yeah, it yeah. raises other questions here's my last question to you. So you and I have spoken now uh, about really what would be described as the large scale uh, mechanized mining uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and the relationship that it has with uh, communities my question to you is what is our view on artisanal small-scale miners would we perceive the same kind of obligation uh the same kind of relationship with communities where do we stand with that
1: yeah that's uh, you could do a whole podcast uh, (laughs) on on artisanal mining and maybe you should Um, it's it is different though right because often um well okay so first of all often artisanal mining is people within the community engaging in mining activity at a small scale level kind of exploiting their own resources or the resources in their own backyards right so you don't have the same dynamic of um, external actors coming in and disrupting a community to make way for mining activity what you have more often is a community that's itself trying to profit um, by exploiting mineral resources. Although you do have, you know often these same dynamics that we discussed earlier of people then wanting to come in from outside to participate. Uh, and then you have to think about whether the community has the right to block people from doing that. But in any case, I think with artisanal mining, um, the issues are, are a little bit different in the sense that you often have situations where the economic activity has a lot of local legitimacy but it might be proceeding in ways that are really destructive to the environment that are maybe making use of a lot of hazardous child labor um, that are being carried out in um, really unhealthy and unsafe conditions. For example, you might have people burning mercury in their homes to process gold. And then that raises a lot of thorny questions about whether whether that needs to be better regulated um, or whether that is kind of crushing the Economic well being of local communities. It raises a lot of thorny questions about whether bigger firms should be buying gold from these artisanal miners, which um, in theory is a great way to contribute to local economic empowerment. Um, But you might be buying gold that's tainted with a lot of environmental and human rights problems too. So, very much, I think, um, a very different set of issues, but a no less complicated one. And I think. I mean, the only other thing I would say I think about artisanal mining is that I think over the last decade or so, this has gone from being a pretty widely neglected issue to one that's really getting uh, a lot more attention on the part of mining companies, governments, actors like the World Bank, really sort of trying to figure out how to uh, better empower artisanal mining communities to participate in the market, but also avoid some of these harmful impacts of unregulated small scale mining.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, you're right Uh, to to acknowledge that uh, almost each one of the issues we've raised is a podcast series and it's all right. But to your point, that's probably why we want to talk about it. Uh, Well, uh, Chris, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive podcast. I learned a lot from speaking with you.
1: Thanks very much for having me.